Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Sylvia Global Radio. You're listening to Wealth Psychology with Emily and Dr. Jamie. Good morning. This is the Wealth Psychology Radio Show with Jamie and Emily. Um, and right now you have Jamie. Oh. And hope, hopefully we will have Emily here as well. She is in Mexico. And Jamie, I just jumped on. Oh, what perfect timing. Welcome, Emily. I know. I'm so glad to hear started. your voice. I'm so glad to hear your voice. So I was Yay. just introducing the call, hadn't started yet, and I'm not even sure that Deborah's on yet. But we are having a spectacular show today talking about couples and money. Um, and money, for those of you who uh, don't fight about it, is the number one thing that couples fight about. So probably everybody is doing a little couple a little bit of fighting, and as you know, we're really about being proactive with things so that you don't have to get to the level of fighting, but you can have a stronger, more healthy relationship with yourself with money and also with your partner. So that's today's conversation with author Deborah Price, who's written several books, yeah. um, and her latest book is called... Um, the Heart of Money. Thank you. I'm looking for that for the exact title, um, which is a wonderful book. I think one of the first books that really specifically addresses um, couples and money. And I know we're, we're so excited. fortunate. And uh, we both ahead, uh, we both work directly with Deborah. Um, are trained as uh, money coaches through her Money Coaching Institute and. Um, I'm certified to work with couples as well as individuals and organizations. Jamie um, is certified with families and um, individuals, and definitely couples are part of families, and it's really thrilling to be able to bring out more information about Deborah's work and her new book and how to support couples and having these emotionally charged conversations when they come around about money. Because some people would say, oh, no, we don't argue. You know, we don't, we don't fight. And we want to really honor that, and maybe it's more of the um, difficulties around these conversations that has us avoid having them because of not wanting to ex- experience a conflict. So we'll talk a little bit about that as well. I would say, Emily, that a lot of our most powerful um, work around money often happens with couples because they have such a wonderful opportunity to realize by being more conscious of some of the other patterns that have been running them around money that we've talked a lot about and that um, Deborah has really um, revolutionized in the archetypes that um, people really get an understanding. They haven't, even though they've been using the same words, this is how we spend money, they really haven't had a deeper understanding of what their own values around money are. And then once you get that, you're able, much more able to talk with your partner about it and decide together. So, We've done some powerful work, and I think Deborah's on, so let's introduce her. Deborah, are you on? I'm here. Hello. Well, wonderful. Welcome. to hear your voice. Uh, great to hear your voices. And you are located where at this moment, Deborah? I'm located in Northern California, just um, north of San Francisco in Novato, California. Great. Deborah, so we've got wondered... Northern California represented. Sorry? Go ahead, Emily. 
And then, Jamie, you are um, in Israel, is that right, in between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem? Yes. And then I am calling um, and joining into this radio show from Rancho La Puerta in Tecate, Mexico, um, in the Baja Peninsula. So we are truly global and international here, the three of us, and we also know that our listeners are are listening in from all over the world. And we want to make sure that uh, the the universal experiences of couples are really well addressed and on our, our show today. And by way of introduction, I wonder, um, Deborah, you would tell us a little bit as how you came into this profession, because I think it's so interesting to hear as we talk about um, having our clients and having people be more um, conscious about their own money stories. It's so important to bring out the money stories of, our, of the people that we interview and how they came to be where they are professionally because of those stories. So if you could give us a little bit of a background about who you are, that would be so helpful for our listeners. Well, I'd love to. So I have kind of a a story that is um that winds its way. It seems to me that um you know, I originally started out to become a therapist and went to school to become a therapist and then uh at one point my college counselor said, oh, you have to take statistics. And I literally um, panicked because I was math-phobic. And so I quickly went to the registrar's office and changed majors. Um, And then I ultimately finished school, went out into the world, um, and ended up in my early 20s in the financial services industry of all places and of all ironies. And as it turns out, I really wasn't bad at math. I just had had bad math teachers, and um turns out I was really pretty good at it. So I managed money for over 23 years and did financial planning. And But the thing that was interesting is that that love of human behavior and the psychological nature of of us as human beings has always been where my deep love and interest was. So I began to notice uh, patterns and themes and went on to recognized that there was a huge gap in the industry that nobody was addressing, which is why are we the way we are relative to money? And unfortunately, at that time, nobody was talking about it and didn't want to go there, um, and very few therapists were trained or even interested. And most of the therapists I interviewed at the time in the 80s would say, oh, my God, money. I don't want to talk about money either. So it was pretty funny. So long story short, I decided. Um, to that this was my path, and so I took it on, and here I am. That's well, great. Well, and it's such a wonderful combination that you bring of both your love for humans and your, you know, your deep um, study of it, and also the financial end of it. You know, one of the few people we know that really uses sort of both the quantitative and qualitative sides, and they're able to bridge it so nicely. Yeah, I sort of see myself as a bit of a social scientist in some ways, not formally, but, you know, the financial services industry was really sort of my early er learning laboratory. If I hadn't been in that industry, I would not have observed the behaviors that went on to help me form the basis of the money coaching field, which is, as you know, I no longer am in the practical financial side, um, but the behavioral stuff is so important because that's the missing key. The behaviors drive 
the the decisions that we make around money. And until we start addressing that, we continue to sort of um, falter, so to speak. Yeah, it, it makes yeah. so much sense. And we um, we want to make sure our listeners know that they can tap in and make use of you during the show because we are live. And so if anybody wants to have their specific questions addressed related to um, anything that we're ending up talking about, especially in relationship to couples, I want to make sure that you have the information. You can call in at 347-215-6138. You can tweet at the hashtag Wealth Psychology. And you can also email listeners at sylviaglobal.com, and we will receive your uh, questions through all those different avenues. So, um, yeah, knowing the background and where you're coming from is so essential in terms of really helping people understand why what it is that you bring is so grounded in direct experience of working with couples as they've been doing their financial planning and seeing the patterns and then really expanding out the whole field. So um, we were hoping you could say a little bit about what prompted you to uh, go in the direction of writing this book specifically for couples and about couples in terms of your work. Well, you know, having worked with couples for um, over 15 years now, I one of the things that always uh, challenged me and, and caused me to feel sad at times was that couples often waited too long before they came for help. And what happens over time, if we have uh, issues related to money um, that go unaddressed and unresolved, that, that erodes at the love and intimacy of a relationship. And eventually, before you know it, you no longer trust one another. And trust is a very deep wound to heal in any relationship. It's sort of the fundamental building block. And so what? why I wrote this book was that I, I decided that couples really didn't even know where to go. Um, you, you ladies all know people don't even, to a large extent, know that we exist in the world as a specialty field. We need more people to know that, which is great that you're doing shows like this because it's it's critical. But at least in a book, they have a, a source to go to that opens the doorway to exploring this very important conversation and maybe beginning to do some work and to realize that there is help available so that they don't wait so long and then potentially harm their relationships. And, you know, as we all know, statistically, 50% of all marriages end up in divorce, money being the number one reason. That's a huge fallout in relationships, economically, emotionally, et cetera, and it doesn't need to be. I love what you're saying, Deborah, about that most couples wait too long, and, and I'm having a very personal uh, sort of resonance with it as I am going through some of my treatments. You know, they say you have to really get in front of certain things. Don't let yourself get nauseated. Um, and, you know, it, it's interesting for me to sort of track, like, okay, do I need to take the medicine now? Is this when it's starting? So how can couples be more self-aware of some of the red flags or some of the markers that might let them know that they're moving along the path that this would be a really ideal time already to start having conversations and not waiting till they're already, you know, um, in, in a pretty dire circumstance. 
I I think the number one sort of indicator in all relationships is can you talk about money in a healthy, calm, rational way? Or if you cannot, if every time you begin to have a money conversation, one of you ends up um, in tears or there's a fight or somebody shuts down and just says, I'm not going there, that's a problem. That's a huge red flag. So that's the number one thing is can you communicate about money? And truthfully, we're not taught how to communicate, right? We're That's one of the things that we need more education around. So that's a big red flag. Yeah, exactly, around money. We don't talk about it. So the other is um, do you have clear agreements or did you just sort of accidentally slip into the relationship that you have with one another relative to money and just without discussion made had expectations or assumptions that have just been carried through and then assumed that they would go on indefinitely? That's a big area for challenges for couples. Um, those are probably the two things. And then the third, and we see this often in, in families and in and with couples, is just using money as a means of uh, power and control and or a way to buy or withhold your love. And um, that is um, a precursor usually to a lot of breakdown of trust as well. Can anybody hear me? Yes. Yes. Is this Annette? Hi. This is a, hi. It's Annette Ross. I'm sorry. Can I just ask one question about what you just said, Deborah? Mm-hmm. But that sounds like it's not a money issue. I mean, those things you're talking about. I mean, money is sort of the um, uh, what would be the word? But it's it, those are bigger. I mean, people who can communicate usually can communicate about. Are you saying they can communicate about everything well, but money, or are they just yep. bad communicators who also fight about money? No, it's I'm not very interesting sure I'm really... is that I see couples all the time who are very good communicators in other areas, and the breakdown mm-hmm. is about money. Really? Why is that? Well, I think the primary reason is that, number one, um, there are really about four levels of issues in this particular area. The first is biological and physiological. The brain is actually predisposed to be reactionary when it comes to money because money is a core survival issue. We equate money with food, therefore it's... Uh, high on the sort of reactionary feelings of survival and safety, right? So there are some biological aspects to this that are more interesting to explore than people realize. There are also some very deep past emotional experiences that um, are often unconscious, meaning they happen when we're in early childhood and we don't remember them, and they get triggered. It's like stepping on a wire when you cross over it, you know, suddenly you're in a conversation that goes badly because you've just triggered an old past memory of your childhood, but you don't, you're not consciously aware that that's what happened. And then thirdly, money is a taboo, right? So we're, we're predisposed, we're not trained, and we're actually taught that it's not okay or safe to talk about. So that particular, this particular area of exploration has some complexities to it that don't tend to fall into some of the other areas of communication that we're involved in daily. But let me just address your first point, because that sort of really struck a chord with me. Because then you would have to say, then maybe, because it's about core survival issues, and it most definitely is, we all want to have clothes on our back and a roof over our head, that you would say that most people who are breaking up over and with finances being the primary cause, they're probably then people that are, let's say, they're in, they're poor then. And I would say that that's, I, I just, 
I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure I understand that 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 first issue that you brought. I do understand the taboo pieces of money, um, and completely agree. And I'm not trying to be. Um, I'm actually really, really, as someone who's been married for 18 years and had a lot of ups and downs with money. I mean, really extreme ups and downs. Um, I'm trying to really understand, you know, the truths about this. You know what I mean? It doesn't. It doesn't. It's the first one, especially, isn't really ringing true for me. Well, or I'm not understanding it. Let me. I would love an example. I would love an example. So, um, I was working with a client recently who um, they are both upper upper middle class. Um, They have plenty of money. They both come from money. Um, they are both uh, very, very great communicators, very well educated, and I would say their emotional EQ is way above average, right? Mm-hmm. And they have a couple kids. They really do love each other, but they have uh, in, an inability to communicate about money in a way that ever gets anywhere other than to a big fight, and it was causing enormous breakdown in their relationship. So one of the reasons we use archetypes is to begin to understand how the patterns that we have get triggered, um, mostly in the more immediate moment, those are emotional breakdowns, and these I call it the battle of the archetypes. So, for example, he is a strong warrior at his best, and she is a... Uh, an innocent at you know sort of as her primary archetype mm-hmm. so the innocent has natively a lot of fear and anxiety and safety issues relative to money mm-hmm. that's just their sort of basic nature and therefore they become very fearful and anxious and so those are where they are sort of at stasis but the minute that either one of them goes to the reactive and aspect and the reactive part by the way comes from the brain first it's not emotional it's physical so when either one of them becomes reactive he goes to tyrant and she goes to victim or martyr and so they end up be polarizing to a great extent and what you see is not the best of them where he's the great provider caretaker lover he then and she goes uh, you know, to his his wife, and so they end up in this middle at this huge fight. Where, in truth, what we learned about them was that his purview of of the world was that money was a source of great pain. He was given everything but the love and affection he really needed, and so he went to the other side and became very non materialistic. In her world. Her father withheld things and money to an extreme, even though he had it, because he was a tyrant. Mm-hmm. So ultimately what she did was she married her father. Mm-hmm. Now, not at his when he's at his best, he wasn't, but when he got triggered, he reverted to the tyrant pattern. And she, in reaction to him, in a way that is very primal, because what she feels is that he's, that money equals love to her. Because in her universe, and the only way she ever felt loved was when her father gave her something. Mm-hmm. So you end up with these very complex sort of polarities that happen. But I can't emphasize enough that one of the things that we recognized with her that her husband had to know was that her core survival issues got 
triggered at such a deep level that she became so irrational he couldn't actually communicate with her. And that's the the thing about money that is very unique is that, you know, we literally have three brains. You know, the first one is 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 primitive, that's how we evolved. The second one is more the emotional brain. The third one is the higher functioning executive brain. The problem is is that primitive brain takes us down. It sabotages us all the time. We imagine the worst case scenario. We feel like we are out of control and not safe, even if it's not true. And then mm-hmm. go immediately to this irrational, illogical place. And believe me, people don't understand that there are some complex dynamics at work. I hope that helps you a little bit. No, no actually, that was that was phenomenal. Yeah, really go ahead. Great question. Really, it's like you just allowed us to dive so deeply and so quickly into why this is relevant and important for anybody who's listening. This is Emily speaking, because we really are so clear that these ingrained patterns are biological, physiological, emotional. There's so many different components to it, and it's universal. It's across culture. It's across all kinds of um, language, all of it. And we um, want to make sure that whoever is listening at whatever level they are financially, um, in their relationship, whether they're newlyweds, whether they've been together for 25 years or more, this is relevant, and it can always support you wherever you are in having that much more um, access to other ways of interacting and being with each other around topics that automatically send us to a, a, a fight-or-flight state so quickly that we can bring ourselves back and have new ways of moving with each other. And, Deborah, you just spoke so beautifully about the uh, example of the archetypal patterns that we brought up a number of times on the show because, again, they're universal. I mean, we experience them across cultures, and uh, it's something that when people really understand how they move in their lives, they have new ways of moving and new ways of relating with each other. So uh, thank you for that really in-depth response. And I just feel like, wow, we just dove right in. and want to make sure our listeners know that they can call in with their questions at 347-215-6138. You can tweet at hashtag wealthpsychology, and you can email us at listeners at sylviaglobal.com. And, um, and now, did you have a follow-up question to that? Or could Jamie, do, do you have one that you want to bring in? I think it's great to think about these these issues of the red flags. I also think that, like you said, people often don't know that um, this kind of work exists. So, you know, that is really a big part of what Emily and I are trying to do with the show is raise awareness. Um, Once people realize they need to come in and they find someone that they can come into, then what are your recommendations of how couples can really – go about having much more healthy relationships with one another and be proactive. Well, as you know, we have a very specific um, step-by-step process that we use to work with um, our clients to really sort of peel back the layers and begin to understand their, their own particular patterns and behaviors at both the individual level as well as because you have your patterns individually, and then you have um, patterns that you uh, brought in from your family of origin, and then you have your ours patterns, patterns that you developed uh, in your own relationship, or, which are often where the conflict lies. 
So first go through and begin to understand the deep um, story and meaning um, of money in your own life, which is a, a, a great exploration. And then we also begin to understand the archetypal um, aspects of your relationship and how those manifest. And archetypes are a very, very deep and rich language. And once clients learn to understand their archetypes, it becomes a language that they can use to communicate with. So, And not in a way where you say, oh, you're being such a tyrant, um, where you say gently, honey, I'm noticing that, you're, that your tyrant is active and I just want to notice that that's happening and what are you feeling fearful about? That's a very different paradigm shift because, for example, the tyrant will show up because of their deep need for control um, due to safety issues that are often that predate the relationship. So we need to learn to recognize that these characters um, or parts of ourselves show up and then that they're there for a reason and that when we notice them, we can then speak to them. And if we do that with compassion and love for our partner because we know their story, the outcome is about a million times more positive. And then, of course, once we understand those core patterns and behaviors, we move into behavior change uh, aspects of the coaching where you actually, because identifying a pattern, becoming aware, does not change it. Very few people can change in a vacuum like that. It's the beginning stages of change. From there, you move into helping the individual or the couple change the patterns through um, very different kinds of uh, processes. Yeah, and I have to say, I want to slow this down because you just said such a brilliant gem that I want to make sure all of our listeners really get a chance to digest, which is that you can encounter the same patterns again and again in your relationship and you can be a choice at how you move with them differently each time they arise. And using each one as an opportunity to show up maybe newly, differently, a different way of asking the question uh, allows you to build that muscle of how to uh, try on new ways and experience different ways of interacting and communicating. And I love... In your um, previous book that uh, is such a core component in terms of the archetypes, the Money Magic book, when you describe archetypes as if they are players on a stage and reminding people that they are the playwright and the director. And that idea of, you know, your, your tyrant's up, you know, it's like, wow, it looks like tyrant is front and center, center stage again. You know, we know that this is not necessarily going to take this, act and play the way we want it to go, can we bring another one forward? What would that be like? Or can I really hear what that tyrant is speaking that they're afraid of from a different place so that I would be more likely to hear them? Because then it's a lot of, it, it just empowers people so much more. That's what I've seen in terms of couples. It's like, oh, it's not you. I'm not identifying you as that. It's that, oh, that aspect, that pattern is showing up, and I can move differently with it. And that's a really great um, uh, context that you just gave there, Emily, which we always tell our clients. It's actually not you, your personality. It's your behavior that's showing up and and or a pattern um, that is being triggered. And so to separate out the person from the behavior becomes critical because you love the person. You don't always like or enjoy the behavior, but we get those two very confused. 
Well, one of the ways that I love that you talk about it, Deborah, is that you often liken it to a play and that if we let the archetypes run us, then they essentially write our, our life play. But if we become the playwright, we get to determine. Sometimes there will be some archetypes that show up that, you know, missed their cue and came on stage anyway, but we can gently invite them to go back to, um, you know, an example you gave earlier, to pick more of a warrior archetype at the moment that we realize that the tyrant's shown up at the stage. And, you know, just like any new skill set, that really takes a lot of practice. And I know particularly with couples, there's certain patterns that show up. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the archetypal patterns that you often see with couples to give our listeners a flavor for, you know, some of the relationships that are, you know, the pattern types that happen, you know, within a couple. Yeah, so basically what every relationship has is um, a combination of either dominant, um, dominant, dominant, or dominant passive, or passive, passive. So in other words, dominant archetypes um, tend to be the, they're, they're much more uh, the stronger um, alpha archetypes, if you will. So that's the warrior, um, the fool, the creator artist, the magician, the tyrant. Those are more dominant archetypes. They tend to take the lead as opposed to um, the innocent, the victim, sometimes the fool, and also sometimes the creator artist tend to be a little bit more passively engaged when it comes to money and also in other areas of your life because sometimes these archetypes slip in and, and infiltrate other areas other than just about money. So if you are in a relationship and you are both two warriors, chances are for the most part you're going to get along really well unless, of course, there's a trigger from the past and it moves one of you when you're feeling um, whatever's going on in the external world or something internally gets triggered moves you to either the victim or the tyrant or wherever that you go when you get triggered. Um, so if you can just imagine there's a, that there's an invisible line um, between um, whatever your primary archetypes are that are more dominant to your lesser archetype that is not your highest and best self, but where you go. And the minute that, that somebody steps on that line, that's where you go to. And as you begin to notice that, you can begin to control it. So as you begin to discover, you know, it's in many cases, it's really interesting. And so let's take the example of spender-saver, right, which is frequent in a lot of relationships. One's the designated spender, one's the designated saver. And that's a conflict in relationships, right? Well, often those are become polarized and there's conflict there. Well, if you can begin to realize that behind the spender and behind the saver, there's actually an archetype. And what what is the expression of that archetype? How Why are they expressing that way? Well, the saver probably does it because he's a warrior, he, she is a warrior or a um, tyrant or magician. And depending upon how tightly they hold, depends on the tight, more tightly they hold, the more tendency toward tyrant. At the saver, at the spender side, that's probably an innocent fool or creator artist because they have a different need of expressing relative to money, and often that need is, I just don't want to pay attention, 
um, or I love this beautiful thing, I need it, I want it now. So there are these behaviors actually have archetypal influences in the background, and if you can understand them, you can speak to them. I hope that wasn't a little too much, but... <laughs> No, it's so great. I really love how you dive so deeply into it, and you give people really good context for it. And what's so great about what you said is we can see a behavior in front of us. And if we only look at that from the standpoint of what is it that I think this person is up to, and we don't check in and find out what is the motivation behind that, we can cause so much mischief in our relationships because we, we project and we think we know what's going on for that person and why they're behaving that way, when in fact, we may not. And if we can find out what's the motivation behind it and what's driving them to behave that way, that's where connection happens, that's where more intimacy happens, that's where more understanding gets to happen, and we have conflict happen when we have that strong, uh, entrenched feeling of my is the right way. And if somebody shows up not immediately agreeing or showing up the same way is a problem. As opposed to, oh, we're different people, we have different motivations, how do we become aligned together and working together? And with that said, I have a question for you that's come in from uh, uh, Toronto, Canada. And this is a couple that are in an interesting situation where um, she's had a, like a government job uh, and she's... Um, uh, been in this position where her husband's more of a spender, she's more of a saver, and he um, loves to uh, spend, and she's able to say, oh, well, we don't have enough money. And that's worked really well as a way to keep her feeling more secure. And her her question is that she's just received um, an inheritance. Her mother passed away. And now the uh, excuse of not being able to afford it is no longer a viable excuse anymore. And she's wondering, how does she begin to open up this question and this conversation around why we have really different standards around um, spending and saving? And not, she doesn't want to fall into that, that trap of the control piece that you were talking about. It's one of the, the issues that happens for couples with money. So how would you help somebody in that situation like open up that conversation um, when the, the reason for why the spending couldn't happen in the past is no longer there. Well, I've always contended that, um, you know, neither spender nor saver are perfect um, or ideal, that the the thing is is that we need balance in our lives. And so, you know, I love the Rumi quote, you know, uh, there is a field um, in the middle between right and wrong, and I will meet you there. Because the fact is is that we need to learn to honor and respect our differences, but we can't do that if we don't understand them and how they got there. And there's a reason why she has a need and a pattern to tend to want to hold on that she currently doesn't have enough awareness around. And if she could understand that, she might need, she might be able to feel more comfortable um, spending money appropriately rather than holding on for safety. And at the same time, there's a reason why her spouse is more of the spender that is a pattern that he is unaware of. And as they begin to understand each other's patterns and honor the that 
and have compassion for them and then say, now that we understand this, let's figure out a new way of doing it. Let's meet in the middle where we can learn to actually save money in a very prudent, mindful way and um, and spend money um, in a way that gives us joy and sources us and and is in alignment with our values because that is really kind of a key area that I've discovered is that spending in alignment with your values really does make a huge difference with couples. But the the fact is is that if she were to suddenly start spending a lot of money, um, that would upset her her sort of pattern system, and that's unlikely to happen. More likely that she, without understanding it, she would get even increasingly more controlling because what the research shows is that when people get more money, they suddenly feel greater burden and responsibility, and so whatever their patterns are underneath tend to get worse, not better. So this is a great time and opportunity to explore this, right, to begin to look at what this is really about and then map a plan for how you want to do it differently. This is such a great interview. Jamie, I know that you're just like beaming over there. Deborah, it's brilliant what you just said. I want to know if you would be willing to speak more into that research because that is core to so many of our listeners. You know, our work centers around working with um, people who have had sudden wealth, um, inherited wealth, uh, great disparities of wealth within the relationship uh, where one person has come with more than the other and they've had to deal with prenups. Um, could you speak a little bit more about this piece of the research and um, so that it it's, it's really tragic that in terms of like inherited um inherited and or um if you suddenly get divorced and you have a windfall or you win the lottery, the average person has lo- gone through um, the majority of those assets, if not all, within three to five years and is generally worse off than when they started. Now, in terms of... Um, it's because of that, they not being able to expand into that capacity to to um, feel that they can handle that burden? Or what what is it that, that they see as causing Well, I, I honestly believe just in observing this is that um, for many people, especially if they haven't lived with wealth, there now when you come from wealth, the the this the scenario is a bit different, you know. Jamie, um, we've talked about this before. The shirt sleeves to short sleeves usually occurs within about three generations. So it takes one generation to make it. The second generation uh, can usually maintains it. The third generation loses it. Um, so it takes longer because the people who have inherited wealth have different patterns. They're more accustomed to money, but people who are unaccustomed to money. Um, due to these very complex structures, one is physiological, biological stuff that makes us more fearful and anxious, the, um, working with clients who've inherited money and for the first time and or who get you know, a windfall in some ways, the one thing that I've noticed repeatedly is the high level of stress and anxiety that the money has, has given and brought to their lives. And when we don't know how to manage stress and anxiety, guess what? We begin to mess up. Because what happens when we are under stress, we, we, the brain produces too much cortisol. The, that's like too much gas in the carburetor. It causes us to malfunction. So we're not at our best to make the best decisions. And depending upon your archetypes, you're going to have a tendency to behave in very kind of predictable ways. But you don't know that. So what happens 
is that the combination of those stress factors, the anxiety and stress that money can, sudden money brings to your life, added to that your own emotional background and those triggers generally prevents us from accessing the part of the brain, the executive uh, management part of the brain that should be the CFO. It gets shut out because of the both physiological and emotional things that we are blind to and that are running us. Right. I, I need to jump in here because anybody who's ever worked in the financial services, any advisor who is listening to this is definitely getting an um, eye-opener if they aren't aware of this already because you know that they're seeing this happen all the time when they're working with their um, clients. Clients are coming to them with um, very specific needs. They have a couple in front of them that they, they seem motivated, they seem ready, and then they encounter all of this. Uh, do you have anything that you would say to advisors or how to support couples in working with advisors when these things come up? Because you did work on that side of it as well. Well, one of the things I used to do with clients is I would say when they first came to to me with this sudden money situation, I'd say, so what I want you to do is make a list of everything that you need to take care of in, a, in terms of financial needs that is important to you. And then what I'd like you to do is make a list of all the things that you'd really love to do. And, and so that we take a look at both your wants and your needs and that then we're, what we're going to do is give you for the first year a certain amount of money so that you just don't go wild, that addresses of course, we take care of the needs first, and then let's take care of some of your desires. But what happens is that people tend to not function on, focus on the needs very much because we're wired for desire. We're wired to want as human beings. That's how we've survived on the planet for three and a half billion years, right? So because of the fact that we're wired for desire, that's the part of us that takes us down. The problem is is that we know that our desires get the best of us and that no matter how big, how much we spend, it never makes us happy anyway. So let's just manage the desires. Let's manage them. Focus on the needs. Focus on what makes you happy. And and if you do that, things will be okay. But what happens is a lot of advisors want to just take care of the needs and they don't give somebody, I believe, give them some mad money and let them go play. And what they're going to feel after a year is that was fun, but actually they still feel like they're the same person that they were before. It didn't change their life. I think that's such great advice. We often, when we work with clients, say, um, you know, just that. Give yourself a little adjustment time. Have some mad money that you can use in the next year, but try not to make any major decisions, both in how to invest the money or where to give it away um, you know, how you might want to share with others because it really does take the time to adjust. And we've um, read some remarkable research done by um, two of our car- colleagues, Jim Grubman and Dennis Jaffe, and they liken the transition from one um, socioeconomic level to the next to be like moved to a different country. And you really need to learn what are the customs, what are the traditions, how does life work in this other country. Um, And, you know, having moved to a foreign country three years ago myself, I really have a great sense of that. And it really does take a a time to sort of settle in. People who just are off and running and making decisions, 
you know, shooting from the hip. I think that's where you really see this three to five year trajectory of getting yourself right back where you were. Um, I also love what you said, and I want to speak more into it about the dominant and the passive archetypes, because I think what I was hearing you saying, and also what the Rumi quote is, oftentimes, you know, when couples come in, they think, oh, we've really got to change who we are. And what I hear you saying is there's a softening that can happen. There's a um, decrease of polarity and moving more to the center. You can still have your role as the saver in the family, and the other person can have their role as a spender, but you you need to be a little bit more towards um, the center of the fulcrum. And I really love that idea because it's easier than thinking we've got to do something completely different. Am I on target there? Yeah, and I think it's important to know that um, flexibility is critical to the survival of any species and our relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, to the extent that we become very rigid um, and don't adapt, guess what? We perish. And we, you know, I I study evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology because so much of who we are evolves from that. And the fact of the matter is, is that flexibility is the key to survival in all species, including our relationships. So how can we learn to be more flexible and to adjust? And to and, and we can do that through entering the heart first. Through the heart, the heart is the doorway to compassion and understanding. And from that place, we can Uh, I see this every day with clients, that people start to go, oh, my God, how could it be that I've been married to you for 20 years and I didn't know this part of you? I didn't know your story. I didn't know you had this pain. And so our heart opens, and then we are much more pliable and flexible. Absolutely. So if people wanted to get, you know, if our listeners wanted to get an initial sense of more information about what kind of questions, how they can be approaching one another, um, would you recommend the book? The book really has some very, I would, I guess is how I would say it. I would definitely think the book is a must-read because there's lovely exercises in there that people can take from each chapter. Um, could you maybe talk about some of the, the chapter topics so people could see what they could already start to be learning simply from reading your book? Yeah, so um, the book is written in a way that you can actually go through an exploratory journey with your partner or spouse pretty easily on your own. Um, And, you know, just open that doorway, which is, you know, such a a rich experience. And I've had couples contact me and say, you know, we'd love to work with you, but we're not nearby. And even though all of us work remotely, some people want to work, you know, with somebody. And I say, look, just... um, Open the book and start reading it together. I recommend actually people reading it in bed together and taking turns reading and then talking about it, um, provided that it doesn't escalate into any kind of you know uh, debate or conflict. So use it as a, an opportunity to explore. So initially, you're going to explore your own your own story, um, begin to understand the mythology that you have individually as well as in your relationship. And then you're going to just move along into looking at the patterns and the origin of those patterns from your families. And we talk a lot because, as I said earlier, communication is the key um, to at least being able to manage what comes up, the whole language of financial intimacy. And I give a lot of frameworks for couples to use in terms of how to talk about money. 
And it's kind of funny because when I wrote the book, my editor from my, my the publisher contacted me and said, do people really talk like this? And she was kind of debating with me. And I said, actually, um, the language that I use is taken from the principles of nonviolent communication. And once you learn how to speak like that, you'll never want to speak another way. So um, it's the the language frameworks are really easy to use. They may feel awkward in the beginning, but once you begin to use them, you'll find that they're incredibly effective. Um, so and I just want to I want I want to jump in for our listeners who aren't familiar with nonviolent communication. That is a term that uh, Marshall Rosenberg uh, wrote about um, and has. Uh, it's a whole other thing that you can learn much more about, and I love that you've brought that into the book. It makes it so exciting. Yeah, so you can also go on the NVC. It's called nvc.org um, for the nonviolent communication. Uh, it's a nonprofit um, based in, um, I think, Texas now, but uh, plenty of great information for you to check out there. Great. Yeah, and just and the idea also- of... Taking violence out of the conversation. Yeah. Sorry, Jamie. No, I was going to say, as we weave in this discussion and we come, you know, close to the top of the hour, I also want to include a uh, listener question, so maybe you can continue to talk about the book with with this in mind, too, because I think this is a a popular question. There's a listener from California who said, my goal every time there's extra money is to save it and put it towards paying down mortgage debts or retirement. And my husband's immediate instinct with extra money is to splurge a little on something he's been desiring, on a trip that we've been wanting to take. As a result, when I try to teach our kids how to save money, I feel like he contradicts me. Do you have any advice? This seems like a perfect platform for which a couple might use the book. Yeah, this is why I love working with families, um, uh, depending upon the age of the children, um, where you can begin to see how early the patterns show up in your children on the basis. The greater the disparity in the patterns between the parents, the more likely that your children are going to grow up with some some issues relative to money. So please bear in mind that your children should not be a part of your money conversations that have conflict. What's because they're going to become overwhelmed, confused, and maybe even fearful because they don't know how to integrate the disparity between the behaviors, especially if there's a lot of emotion involved. It's triggering. Um, but the 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 thing is is that I love to get families together, you know, where you first the, the parents um, begin to revision, literally revise your life, revision it, um, and think about what it is that you really, really want, what really matters. Again, needs and wants are critical, but values related is uh, even more important. And that I think that the polarity often is she, you may, as the, the saver, be almost overcompensating and saving because you think if you didn't that he would spend it all. And so what happens is that we tend to overcompensate on on both ends. So he thinks, oh, my God, I finally got a little money. I'm going to use it because I don't know when I'm going to get any again, right? So the idea, again, is meeting in the middle and, and then bringing your children and your family in and say, look, this is how much we have. We've, we have this amount of money, and after we pay for our life, we have this amount left over. And these are what our values are, and we're going to apply X amount of dollars to what we value in terms of the future, 
and then X amount of dollars for what we value in the present, and maybe even X amount of dollars for what we want to support in terms of tithing or you know philanthropy, depending upon your budget. So that children learn to begin to look at both sides and participate and say, well, yeah, we, we'd rather have an experience today and go on vacation than we would to buy, let's say, a new iPod, right, or, that, or whatever it is. So the idea is that you start to really reflect and bring it together first together as a couple and then move your family into it. Obviously, if your children are really young, they cannot participate. But usually by the time they're about, I don't know, 8 to 10, they can participate to some degree. Jamie, I, I don't know if you remember this, but when we did our Family Wealth Legacy Workshop, the, there was a little boy there, and the family actually had plenty of money. They weren't highly affluent, but they had plenty of money. And in the end, there was something. They were both very tight with money. The father was very tight with money. The mother was kind of disconnected from money in some ways. But um, in the end, we asked him, what he most wanted when they said, what would you like to spend money on? And he said, I'd like to have a lamp in our living room. And they said, why? We have lamps. What do you want? And he said, well, it's not a good enough lamp, and I have to go to my room to study, and I'd rather be here in the living room with the family, but the light's not good enough. But the father wouldn't buy the lamp. And all of a sudden, the parents looked at each other, and they went, oh, my God. The wisdom of that child, he wants a lamp so he could be with you not because he's materialistic. So it's the wisdom of our children is so profound and we don't put them into the formula and that we're missing something. I love it. And he was, you know, it was such a profound moment when the family really looked around and said, this is absolutely to our value of being together. And you know what? It's really a nominal fee in order to make, you know, our evenings together be... um, be so much more intimate because we can all be in the same room. Well, well Deborah, when I we ask the question, how does it make you feel that you that you couldn't have the lamp? And he said, I, it makes me feel poor. Mm-hmm. Now, the feeling of poor is going is a hardwired pattern. Now, they're not poor, but if a mm-hmm. child feels poor because the environment is producing an experience that says we don't have enough. He's going to feel poor. And guess what archetype he already scored high as? The tyrant. The tyrant feels poor, feels unsafe, feels there's not enough. And that child is 10 years old. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel like we've just really, uh, you know, touched the tip of the iceberg, Emily. I think we're going to have to have Deborah back on the show. Um, as we reach the top of the oh, hour, I, I want to make back, sure Deborah. that we're... Anytime, ladies. Great. We will set up. <laughs> That's great. You know, this might even be a multi-layered thing as we dive deeper. And it's interesting, just as there is somewhat of a taboo of talking about money, talking about it with your with your partner. You know, I think it also um, we're paralleling that that it takes it'll take maybe another show or two to really dive even deeper to be able to talk about as we peel back. You know, as we like to say, the artichoke instead of the onion peel back the different layers till we get to the really meaty heart. Um, but each each layer is so significant and so important. So we want to give our listeners some of our takeaways that we um, 
that we always give. The first one is our evocative question. And that is, if you could change one thing about how the two of you relate to money together, what would it be? This is a great place to start off a conversation and then to use Deborah's book as a way to help you answer that or help you move into conversations that will answer that. Emily, do you like to give us the uh, inspirational invitation, inspiring invitation, excuse me? Sure. So our inspiring invitation today is the next time that you find yourselves needing to make a financial decision together, we invite you to be proactive and make a choice to try something new in how you approach the topic and the decision. I mean, you got some great gems just from the show today. There's plenty more in Deborah's book, The Heart of Money. Um, and yeah. our, our invitation is for you to observe how your conversation goes and see if you can keep it on track so that it stays in more of that rational, effective route and maybe less likely to um, go off track and so that you can be more effective. And then our useful tool, of course, is uh, Deborah Price's new book, The Heart of Money. And if you want to know more about the archetypal patterns that we've been talking about, Deborah's book, Money Magic, goes into detail about those as well. And then, uh, Jamie, you want to speak about some of the other uh, tools that we have available to folks? Absolutely. We're also going to post, Emily did a great show reviewing um, archetypal patterns so on money, and we're going to repost that um, in our archive list so people can get a you know, more firm underpinning. Also, as Deborah said, really coming in before it's too late is such a key piece. So we have tools that we think are very helpful. One is our rich life portfolio that really takes advantage of people being able to look at their past, being able to look at their future, and then being, plan being able to plan together in their present how they want to be with money. And as Deborah said, revisioning the past and the future. Um, also, prenup and money coaching that Emily and I do, Deborah also does, and her organization, Money. I'm sorry, just I just lost it, Deborah. I can't the money, the Money Coaching Institute, and for people that are really drawn to this, Deborah, you're still you're you're certifying and training coaches to do this work too, yes. Yeah? Oh, yeah, that's a major part of what we do is we're a training organization in financial professionals. Uh, psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers, uh, coaches of all kinds, and it's a very unique, uh, specialized body of coaching. Yes, and so we, we recommend it very highly. And, uh, yeah, we, we use it in our roles and individuals, especially those that are impacted with, you know, finding the emotional impact of wealth in their lives is getting in the way of them being as fulfilled and satisfied as they'd like to be. And the purpose of this show, Wealth Psychology with Jamie and Emily, here at Sylvia Global Radio, is all about uh, allowing people to be as productive and satisfied and uh, passionate as they can possibly be. And where the money and the wealth in their lives is uh, a wonderful resource and allows them to uh, thrive, as opposed to bringing them down with that burden that you spoke so strongly about, Deborah. And thank you so much for being here again. Deborah Price, the author of The Heart of Money, and uh, thank you again for being here, and we're definitely going to have you back. And thank you. Everybody Great for way to kick off the, the new year with the, our first live show. So thank you, Deborah. Thank you. It's such a yeah. pleasure to be here. Yay. Thank you.